I'm going to bring to you a message I call your own cistern. And no, that is not uh, past for sisters or cistern, cistern. I'm saying it right. And you'll see it. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. We are in a series of sermons in the book of Proverbs. Uh, We are considering God's wisdom for our lives and how it promises that elusive quality known as happiness. And remember these powerful verses that we've seen several times and we'll see several more times. Verse 13 of chapter 3, happy is a man who finds wisdom. Verse 18, happy are all who retain her. And so God has something to say to us about the subject of human happiness, how to be happy. And today's message is built around a truth we might not expect to hear from Solomon as he extols the virtue of marital intimacy and marital fidelity. He does this, obviously, by the use of metaphors. The cistern and the well and the fountains were all very common in Bible times. A cistern was designed to catch rainwater. Some of you may have visited your grandparents' home that had a cistern, and it would be uh, uh, put in a place where the rainwater usually that would run off the roof would collect in that cistern, and it provided an extra source of water. That's what it's always been. It was that way in Bible times. Many of these were natural rock formations. Many of them were hewn in stone, but most of them were constructed. Some homes would have a well Uh, But not every family could afford to dig a well. And a lot of times it was such an exhaustive and such a huge undertaking that wells were part of the village life. And you see that all the way up into the days of Jesus. In John chapter 4, remember he met with the woman at the well. That was a centerpiece. And if you've been in a third world country... And if you haven't, you probably should be. But if, 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 if you have been there, then you know that to this day, there are people who live by the rule of every day you have to get up and go to the well and draw water and bring it back to your house. And that was usually the responsibility of a young, strong man who would carry buckets of water In Bible times, of course, it was uh, those clay pots that they used to carry water in. The well was a centerpiece then of village life. Many times those wells were fed by springs. We have a name for them. They're called artesian wells. And that is indeed what is mentioned in this passage. Stream, uh, the uh, running water from your own well would refer to a well of the best kind, an artesian well, spring-fed. So it would bubble up that clear and cool water. And then there were the fountains, the streams of water. Now, 
if you think of the fact then that an, a cistern or well is by nature uh, designed to catch and hold water. And a fountain then was something that was designed to disperse water or to give water. Then you will see the comparison that Solomon is making in this passage. In a very discreet way then, he's describing the role of men and women, male and female, in that state of marital intimacy. So that the cistern, the artesian well, would refer to the wife. The fountain would refer to the husband. It's a good time for us to remember this morning that we are designed by Almighty God. God made us the way we are. And we don't have to wonder about that. Jesus said it in Matthew 19 and 4, very plainly. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And if you go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, what does it say? Same thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Something that is only possible, of course, with male and female. In the way that he has designed us, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And if you think that God said that after the fall, think again. So that in their state of sinlessness, God gave them the command, be fruitful and fill the earth. Be fruitful and fill the earth. Man would also, in that sinless condition, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves up on the earth. But of course the fall, the fall messed everything up. So that God gives us more information in Genesis chapter 2. He said in verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Then came the fall. Everything changed about this most personal and intimate of relationship, that of one flesh between husband and wife. Suddenly they were naked, embarrassed, covering themselves from God and from each other, feeling shame for the first time. Imagine what it must have been like for them for the first time to feel shame. Shame. Part of God's judgment on their sin would fall on the marital relationship so that he would say to the woman that her desire would be under her husband and that is that women because of the fall would have a desire to rule over their husband and their husband in turn would rule over her. That was God's judgment on them in the fall. Even without God's judgment, sin had brought that state of shame and embarrassment. It isn't surprising, though, that when Solomon began to deal with issues relating to human happiness, that he gets to this issue. After all, we have a proverb today. 
And I bet you can quote it. Happy wife. Have you ever thought that you never hear anybody say happy husband, happy life? (laughs) You ever thought about that? I thought about it this week and I I think I know the answer. It doesn't rhyme. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's not the reason. We all, we, we all know the reason. Uh, so Solomon speaks discreetly, but very directly in the Bible about this subject. That is somewhat embarrassing to us, and I'll tell you, it won't be any easier for me to preach about than it will be for you to listen if it makes you feel any better. In fact, I almost turned this message over to Brother Justin to preach it. <laughs> I really thought we actually, no, I I did not give that serious thought. I didn't, I wouldn't do that to him. Remember though that Solomon is writing in the prime of his life. Uh, Both the height of his spirituality when he was still right with God and living in wisdom. Later his heart would be turned away from God. And 1 Kings chapter 11 It says that Solomon loved many strange women, uh, and that wasn't that they were strange, uh, strange in the sense of strangers. They were uh, people from nationalities that God had forbidden his people to intermarry with, and yet Solomon did. They were idolaters. And as a result, then, his his wives turned away his heart after other gods. That's in 1 Kings 11. Uh, But that wasn't here. It wasn't at this point in time. His writing in our text then, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings us to this subject, human happiness. And part of being happy has to do with our marital relationships. Now, it can be considered under two major headings. And the first heading is what I chose to call escape. The heading of escape because there is an escape that he speaks of from immoral women. The escape. Verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Solomon goes straight to the heart of this issue. He's warning his son, who would one day be, who was heir to the throne and would one day be king, about the possibility of immoral women. When we go back to the book of Genesis, we know that woman was taken out of man and she was created to be a helper. In fact, the Bible says a help meet or help suitable for the man. That Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not created, man was not created for woman. Woman was created for man. And so the Bible clearly establishes this help meet role for the wife. Uh, she would help her husband. She would nurture her children. All of these things are built into God's design for women. It doesn't mean that a woman can't be good in business. She obviously can. Read Proverbs 31. doesn't mean she can't be effective in education or in many other fields of endeavor. It does mean that God has designed women with the desire to help and nurture. But this immoral woman 
is not interested in any of that. She's bitter, she's sharp, she's manipulative, she's destructive. She would be called a seductress later in the passage to give us an idea of what Solomon is warning his sons about. She doesn't approach a man for what she can do to help or to nurture, but for what she can get. She was out to get, to take, to use, and she's willing to do whatever it takes to get what she wants and is excellent at deception. All of these things that I've just said are in the text. And in verse 6 then, he goes on to say, Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Most men would readily admit that women in general are rather mysterious. And we're pretty much clueless uh, for the most part. Hard to figure out. But the immoral woman takes this to a whole different level. Uh, because her path is bent on destruction and deception and manipulation so that if she gets caught on one level in what she's doing, she'll simply change and switch to something else. There are serious consequences that Solomon promises then to his sons if they fall under her prey or become her prey. Verse 8, remove your way far from her and come not nigh the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. The consequences then, number one, are lost honor or respect. You lose the respect of others. You will have years then filled with cruelty. The loss of wealth. Lost business and financial independence will all be forfeited. At the last, he says, you will mourn because your flesh and body will be consumed. Uh, remember that in the days of Solomon, uh, they didn't have a whole lot of treatment for a lot of the diseases that were associated with promiscuous behavior. Penicillin was discovered in the 1920s. It uh, began to go forward in an amazing way in, in World War II. So, uh, that tells you how far we are uh, with this whole range of antibiotics and antivirals. But uh, before that time, the, the scourge of all kinds of diseases that were carried by promiscuous behavior uh, was well known to the ancient people. There was nothing they could do about syphilis, for example. Nothing. And I know you didn't probably come to church on Sunday morning expecting to hear that word. But it is a legitimate word. Solomon was speaking to a prince in the royal family. And he knew that he would be a target for many immoral women who would pursue him aggressively. 
But you know, in our day, Nancy and I talked about this a lot. We raised three teenage boys, and, and we often discussed how that you don't have to be a prince in a royal family to become a target for address, aggressive women in our culture today or aggressive girls. It was amazing to us to see uh, how aggressively our boys were often pursued by young girls. The seductress. In Bible times, young women were not allowed to move around freely and independently of parents or other protectors. That's probably why the warnings that we see in our passage were not so much directed toward young ladies because they would never be out in public without a chaperone. Always had someone watching over her. That was the dad's responsibility. If he didn't do it himself, he gave it to one of his boys or someone they hired for the job. And trust me, they took their job seriously. Young women in those days did not enjoy the freedom that they do today. And so today, the warning that we would have in this passage toward young men who might deliver themselves from the evil woman or escape from the evil woman would apply just as well to young women who need to escape from wicked men. Trust me, there are plenty of wicked men out there who are just out to use and take and get whatever they can get out of you and cast you aside when they're done. And the results uh, would apply in our day equally. I guess we can all be thankful for equal rights. Uh, if those equal rights, folks, comes equal consequences. Plenty of evil men and evil boys out there. And they will not have any concern about their God-given role to be the protector and the provider. So we see in our text then that godly boys and girls are not immune from this danger. He would say in verse 12, when you've mourned because you see the loss of your money, uh, your years filled with cruelty, lost wealth, lost business and financial independence, your flesh and body then consumed, then they would say, how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I've not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly or the congregation. And so, young people, I, I want to say to you today that the voices of your parents and of your pastors and other teachers are very important to you. You need to listen. And listen very carefully. If your mother is warning you about a girl or a guy, you probably need to listen to her. She may be seeing something that you don't see. 
If your dad is warning about how you're addressing or how you're behaving or what you're doing, you need to listen because this passage tells us, listen, you can be in church every Sunday. That's what he said. I was on the verge of ruin in the midst of the congregation. And you know, and I know because we know how the story ends. He didn't stay on the edge. Solomon ended up himself jumping in with both feet. Ended up to hear. I was on the verge of ruin, he said, in the midst of the great congregation, so that you can go to church every Sunday, and it doesn't mean that you'll be delivered. You can be on right on the edge of total ruin. Some of you young people may be there right now. Some of you adults may be right there right now. So Solomon in the passage then warns. Uh, uh, and encourages how that we must escape. There's an escape then from the immoral woman. But then there's also the embrace of a godly woman. And this is where our text gets to. It's what I read to you this morning, but I'm going to read it again now because we're going to spend a little time there. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, Solomon describes through the use of these metaphors an exclusive monogamous relationship. And it is more than just we're exclusive. It's more than we're going steady. It's more even than we're Facebook official. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. He's talking about marriage here, which has always been God's plan for humanity. God himself performed the first wedding. When he said, for this call shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. There's that leaving and cleaving. You have to leave a home to make a home. Uh, Leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. God designed us to be fruitful and multiply. We'll notice that Solomon talks about the wife of your youth. And we must note today that uh, for most For many generations, most marriages occurred early in life. Um, Very early in life. Uh, Nancy and I were married when we were 19. And we were living on our own. Actually, from the time we got married, we made a lot of mistakes. We had a lot of hardships to endure. We had good parents who helped us some. There were those who suggested that we'd never make it. We've been giving it a try now for 45 years. and So far, so good. <clears throat> but today, the idea of waiting until you're married is scorned and ridiculed. And sometimes it's even called idealistic. And even I've even heard it described as religious oppression. 
But God's instructions are very, very clear in this passage. To rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let your fountain be blessed. Let it be your own and not another's. He describes an exclusive monogamous relationship between two people who waited until they got married to come together. But God's instructions then don't just include what we do or don't do before marriage, but it goes on to describe even what happens after we get married. Verse 19, as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? What a, what a beautiful and straightforward depiction we find in this passage of marital intimacy, of a man enraptured with the love of a good and godly woman. What a testament this is to God's plan then for marriage. When young people make that decision that they will wait until they marry and then they live out the plan of God. But there is a danger. Uh, we might think that this is all going to be easy. And that it all will just fall in place and it will all just be automatic. <laughs> but it's not. That's why we have 1 Corinthians 7, and I didn't put this in the notes. Uh, you can go home and read that for yourself this afternoon. But 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how that husbands and wives then have authority over each other's body and how that they are to render unto each other the affection that is due their husband and wife. And not only that, but they're... Not to deprive one another for that affection except by consent for the purpose of prayer and fasting. Enraptured then is such an interesting word. Interesting because this is the only time in the Bible that this particular word is used in a positive sense. Every other time it's used. It's used of a person who is wondering or staggering, usually drunken, drunk. But here it's used in a metaphorical sense, like an alcoholic who has such a strong desire for alcohol. We are to have that same and even stronger feeling for one another. What a, what a marvelous translation that word is. Uh, being raptured always with her love. Well, the righteous brothers warned us a long time ago that you, you, you might lose that loving feeling. And it's gone Gone, gone. Uh, when Jesus preached about marriage and answered the questions that they asked about divorce and marriage, you, you might remember that his disciples offered some commentary. They said, if this is the way it is, then they said, well, it would be better for a man not to get married at all. 
but Jesus would say to them, well, no, what, what I'm talking about is not for everybody. This, you can't receive this unless it's given to you uh, to be received. Because some people don't fit into this. There would be uh, people who uh, would not be able to marry. There would be uh, all kinds of health situations and things that develop. Uh, we all get older. All of these things play a part in that. But being enraptured with one another's love does not just speak to us of physical intimacy. It does speak of that, but uh, not just that. Not just that. There's more to being one flesh than just physical intimacy. It speaks of that, but not, not just that. And he ends up then the passage in verse 21 by saying that the ways of men... The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. I tell you, I've brought that passage up a whole bunch this week just to think about how God would ponder our paths. We know what ponder means. It means to think about something seriously, to reflect on it, Uh, not just to take a passing glance, but God would see what we're doing and how we're living Because in this most important of all relationships, as far as our human relationships are concerned, it's possible for us to let things go a long, long way the wrong way. I've dealt with a lot of young couples who are considering being married, and I tell them what I have to tell myself Uh, days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and months turn into years and that's my way of reminding us that we can stay mad for a long time no matter how many times I preach to myself don't let the sun go down on your wrath it's hard to live out we can indeed lose that loving feeling where we're not enraptured with each other's love anymore And we can all clean up on Sunday morning and come in here and smile. But God God knows the reality that we're all living out at home. There's a lot of people who live lives of quiet desperation. They can't talk to anybody about it because they don't think anybody can understand. And all of a sudden we look around and somebody else is splitting up. And we wonder, well, where did that come from? Well, it had been building a long, long time. So when things go wrong in this most important of human relationships, it's time for us to seek help. Uh, Spend time in prayer. Maybe talk to somebody. Because within this monogamous relationship called marriage, where we are enraptured with each other, where we drink waters from our own cistern and our fountains go only where they belong. Within that, there is the potential for incredible human happiness. As we discover then each other, we learn to make things work. We live out our state of imperfection. And I can tell all you young folks this morning, you might think, girls, when you marry that guy, that you're going to straighten him out. 
Guys, you think that girl, she's, she's going to be everything you always... No, no, no. It's, it, no, we're not going to change her much either. We're going to have to learn to adapt. It's going to take a whole lot of forgiveness. It's going to take a whole lot of effort. Life being what it is, I know I'm preaching to a lot of people who've fallen short of God's design as He has put it before you. It doesn't mean that you're done. It doesn't mean that you have to sit out your whole life in the penalty box. This is not a a game of hockey. And I don't know anything else about hockey except that if you mess up really bad, they put you in the penalty box. You say, well... My life hadn't gone that way. I understand. Oh, if I could turn back time, you can't. You can't. But I'm here to tell you, we serve the God who promises that he can bring beauty out of ashes. Isn't that a great description? I'll give you beauty for ashes. Now, I've just kind of scratched around the surface of this passage this morning. And I've tried to speak just every bit as discreetly as Solomon did. Uh, there's a lot more that he'll have to say in this passage. And if you, if you feel like you've mastered all the information in Proverbs, then tackle Song of Solomon. Yeah. That's a whole book in the Bible written about marital intimacy. Yes. God wrote about that? He surely did. He did. Had a lot to say about it. But, uh, this morning, I hope, I hope that we could give a warning to our young men and young ladies. There's something to get away from. Not only do you not turn in, you don't even hang around the door and look. You stay away. You stay away from this and instead rejoice with the wife of your youth let's stand together please